Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician, an adult, and child holistic psychiatrist. In this podcast, I discuss cutting-edge research into the root causes of brain-related symptoms, alongside ancient understanding of health and well-being. From these left-brain and right-brain perspectives, I discuss interventions, tools, and mindsets that we can use not only to heal, but to thrive. In today's episode, I'll be talking about inflammation, which is incredibly important when it comes to really most psychiatric conditions. So depression, anxiety, panic, PTSD, bipolar disorder, ADHD, autism, dementia, and more. I'll talk about what neuroinflammation is and what causes this and what inflammation can look like as far as symptoms in both the body and the brain. As a case example, I'll use Charles Darwin, who had a range of both physical ailments and brain-related symptoms. To start, though, I'd like to give some definitions. So inflammation is a protective response. It's easy to forget that because we always think of it as being something bad. But basically, it's helping to remove a problem, be it a toxin, an infection, or damaged tissue from an injury, and to start a healing process. So this is a good thing. However, if we have a constant threat, be it toxicity, infection, or chronic stress, then we can be in a state of chronic inflammation, which can damage various tissues. And while this can be in the body, it can also be in the brain, and either way can cause chronic health conditions. Neuroinflammation is when the central nervous system, so the brain and spinal cord, are involved. I'll be focusing on the brain. Neuroinflammation will interfere with the communication between nerve cells and disrupt neurotransmitters or brain chemical functioning and thus cause symptoms. As with any kind of inflammation, neuroinflammation can fluctuate or it can be persistent and chronic. And with chronic inflammation can come cell death. In this case of neuroinflammation, we would call it neurodegeneration. Neurodegenerative disorders include things like dementia and Parkinson's. So neuroimmunology is the study of this interface between the immune system and the central nervous system. Mast cells, which I'll talk about, are really the bridge between these two systems. Though not in the brain, mast cells will communicate with microglial cells, which are immune cells in the brain. So I'll be elaborating on both of these. Neuroimmunoendocrinology is the study of the interface between the immune system, the central nervous system, and the endocrine or hormonal system. This relates to stress. Think of stress as when our ability to cope has been surpassed. This can be emotional stress, and it can be what we call oxidative stress, which relates to an overwhelm of our protective antioxidant system. I'm going to refer to these collectively as stress. Our brain, immune system, and hormonal systems can influence each other in multiple directions, but for now, know that when we are under stress, our bodies produce higher levels 
of a stress hormone, cortisol, which helps us in a number of ways, but one way is it actually dampens our inflammatory response so that it's not wreaking havoc in other ways. But when our bodies are under excessive or chronic stress, our brain will put out more CRH, or corticotropin-releasing hormone, which tells the adrenal glands to release more cortisol. But it can also activate those two cells that I discussed, those mast cells and microglial cells, and thus cause acute inflammation in the body and the brain. If the body is already dealing with a chronic stress, be it from toxicity or a chronic microbial presence, something that shouldn't be there, or chronic stress from trauma or early attachment disruption, then it will be more likely that when we have an acute stress, more of that hormone from the brain will be released and kick up inflammation. Some of us appear genetically to have a lower threshold for this to happen. So we have someone to attach some of this science to, if not ourselves. I'll comment on Charles Darwin, an English naturalist known for his contributions to evolutionary biology. Likely related to his giftedness and contributions were a number of physical and brain symptoms that suggest he had very high immune reactivity and an exaggerated stress response. Today, he might even be considered as someone having chronic complex illness. This would be someone with a wide range of symptoms who's highly reactive and often ends up seeing many doctors who struggle to identify the problem and often attribute the person's symptoms to being psychiatric in nature. Though I am using Darwin as an extreme example of the interplay between our immune system, our brain, and our stress hormone pathways, most of the points I'll be making would relate to most people with brain-related symptoms. The information that I'm sharing about Darwin and his life come from Claudia Kalb's book, Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder Inside the Minds of History's Great Personalities. I'll also be adding, however, my own commentary. So to first consider Darwin's genetic vulnerabilities, his father was a physician and successful financier. To me, this would suggest he was undermethylated, a nutrient imbalance that I've discussed in a previous podcast. He was also known to have been easily upset and feared by many. Darwin's mother was prone to gastrointestinal issues and headaches, which to me makes me wonder if she had high immune reactivity as well. And her father was an ambitious businessman who founded Wedgwood Pottery, interestingly. And I would suspect anyone who was an ambitious businessman would likely have been undermethylated. As a child, Darwin loved collecting. And so to me, this is a very undermethylated or left brain trait. And he had phobias, again, consistent with undermethylation. So though undermethylation is a nutrient imbalance, it does impact our ability to break down histamine and thus to deal with inflammation. And as I've talked about previously, it's very aligned with left brain traits. So this ability to hyperfocus and for some people difficulty 
in seeing the big picture. Symptoms during his youth included trembling, chills, upset stomach, and this would happen with both positive and negative stress, so he had low stress tolerance, as we'd say. And this would be very consistent with pyral disorder, something I've talked about previously. And though pyral disorder is considered a nutrient imbalance, it very much overlaps with mast cell activation. He seemed to have inherited his mother's physiologic sensitivity and his father's undermethylation. When he was eight, his mother died. He could hardly remember her. And this could be suggestive that there was not a strong attachment, or it could be memory issues related to pyral disorder and or undermethylation. He did recall, however, that she had stomach pain prior to her death, and he would go on in his own life to worry excessively about his and later his children's health. He even kept a health diary as an adult, something that I wouldn't recommend, that likely kept him hyper-focused on his symptoms, and it seemed that his symptoms were quite triggering. As a young adult, he tried medical school, which he didn't complete. It left him with a severe phobia of blood, and he was seemingly traumatized from the surgeries that he witnessed. As far as brain health, he was known as a worrier and was very apprehensive about public speaking and had extreme anxiety about being scrutinized. When he was 22, he went on a journey at sea for five years, which would shape his career. This was highly stressful. There were rough seas, navigation problems, and while on the boat, he had bouts of fever, intestinal distress, a swollen knee, boils, headache, and a great deal of seasickness. Prior to this, he was anxious. However, after that journey, he would have debilitating symptoms for the rest of his life, including panic attacks. So I'm going to read something to you about Darwin's health, and as I do, listen for both multiple systems being affected by inflammation and also listen for, since I mentioned it, undermethylation. So these very left brain, detail-oriented, hyper-focused tendencies. The author writes, There is overwhelming evidence that Darwin was sick, often severely so, for much of the latter half of his life. He referred to his ill health repeatedly in his correspondence and painstakingly recorded his symptoms in a health diary whose entries included specific complaints, such as boils under arm, slight fit of flatulence, as well as overall ratings, goodish and poorish and very well and well barely. Darwin's extensive list of woes featured fatigue, dizziness, eczema, boils, muscle weakness, cold fingers and toes, black spots, and even hysterical crying. But his overwhelming complaint was abdominal distress with ongoing bouts of nausea, vomiting, and flatulence. Over the years, Darwin's symptoms have spurred researchers to propose an alphabet soup of diagnoses, agoraphobia, anxiety, appendicitis, arsenic poisoning, barnacle preservative allergy, brucellosis, which is a bacterial infection, Chagas disease, infection resulting from a tropical bug bite, Crohn's disease, cyclical vomiting syndrome, depression, gastritis, gout, hepatitis, hypochondria, 
irritable bowel syndrome, lactose intolerance, malaria, Meniere's disease, which is an inner ear disorder, mitochondrial disease, a genetic disorder inherited from maternal lineage, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, paroxysmal tachycardia, which is a rapid heartbeat, peptic ulcer, pigeon allergy, pyroluria, and social anxiety. The only thing anyone can say with certainty about Darwin and illness is that he died at the age of 73 of heart disease. So if you split these diagnoses into two categories, there's a debate between whether his symptoms were psychosomatic, meaning caused or aggravated by a mental factor, such as an internal conflict or stress, or did he have what some might say an actual physical problem? So this black and white thinking is what plagues medicine still today. The way I would hope we would think about it is that the body and brain were telling him that there was a problem. The alarms were going off, but why? It's never one thing, in my experience, but rather an alignment. To start, genetics could be at play, both under methylation and an exaggerated hormonal stress response, causing an exaggerated immune response. This could be trauma from his early life, attachment issues perhaps, seeing his mother's death, his father's anger, and or it could be from toxicity. Perhaps there was mold on the boat. Perhaps he developed a parasite or other infection. Interestingly, when he was off the boat, his health was relatively good, but that would have also been when he was immersed in nature and doing something he loved, both of which can lower immune reactivity. Though we can't go back and test him for things like mold toxins or parasites, that still would not answer the debate. What the debate is about are, are his symptoms from his head or are they from his body? And I hope you're already seeing that there is no delineation. Our body impacts our brain and our brain impacts our body. Our bodies and brains aren't separate. This is why I call what I do and call this podcast holistic psychiatry. And while I realize this term can sound lightweight compared to functional medicine or environmental medicine, it really is the point I always hope to drive home is that we are whole beings and we're not carrying our heads around on our bodies and we're not just a bunch of parts. So what is happening at a cellular level? I'm going to talk about two cells, one immune cell in the body one immune cell in the brain, and a stress hormone. So to start with mast cells, M-A-S-T, mast cells, they are part of the immune system that mediate immune, allergic, and inflammatory responses. They sense what is going on in our tissues. We have two types, the mucosal type, so those lining our gastrointestinal tract, our respiratory tract, our urinary tract, those systems that have what we call mucosa, so mucosal lining, and the connective tissue type. And connective tissue is what holds us together, holds our organs together, lines our blood vessels, is our skin, our joints. And because mast cells are especially concentrated in areas with direct contact to the outer environment, so skin, gastrointestinal tract, 
our respiratory system, including our sinuses and bladder, they are our first line of defense against toxins and unwelcome microbes. And this is also why more common mast cell symptoms involve the skin, the gastrointestinal tract, the sinuses, lungs, and bladder. It's also worth noting that they act fast. So when they are triggered, they will release what are called inflammatory mediators, basically chemicals that tell other inflammatory cells that there's a problem. So these chemicals, these inflammatory mediators, when released, do many helpful but also potentially destructive things. You might recognize the name of some of these. Histamine would be the most well-known, and that's what we take antihistamines for. But also things like tryptase, chymase, tumor necrosis factor, heparin, proteoglycans, vascular endothelial growth factor, and the list goes on. There's a lot of different interleukins. There's even some neurotransmitters, interestingly, that are released sometimes from mast cells, such as serotonin and dopamine. So when mast cells degranulate, as we say, or dump out the contents of these bags or granules they have within them, those mediators can communicate with other mast cells, creating an acute or immediate inflammatory response. And if this is going on long-term, it can be chronic inflammation. So what are some mast cell triggers? Common ones would be things like alcohol, spicy foods, insect stings, certain medications, temperature extremes, But for those who are particularly sensitive and their mast cells are on high alert, then they may be reacting to many foods, many smells, including perfumes, chemical smells, smoke. They may react when they exercise too much, emotional stress, hormonal changes, such as fluctuations in a woman's menstrual cycle. Even electromagnetic fields can trigger mast cells, so wireless technology even drops in barometric pressure, and even high histamine states, which can be due to inflammation, can then further trigger mast cells. So because they're in so many places, they can cause a wide range of symptoms, many of which Darwin seemingly had. Mast cell activation does occur in asthma, allergy, arthritis, cardiovascular disease, interstitial cystitis, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, cancers, endometriosis, obesity, ulcers, prostatitis, periodontitis, so gum disease, irritable bowel syndrome, and inflammatory bowel disease. Mast cells are not found in the brain. However, they impact the brain indirectly in a number of ways. One way is by releasing mediators that increase the permeability of what we call the blood-brain barrier. This is the barrier between our blood, which is carried throughout the body, through blood vessels, and our brain. And similarly, mast cells can disrupt the gut-blood barrier. So that's the barrier between our digestive tract and our blood vessels, which carry around nutrients and whatever happens to get through that gut blood barrier. 
The gut-blood barrier is what keeps problematic things like toxins, microbes, and food particles out of our blood. And if a toxin or microbe is making its way into the bloodstream from the gastrointestinal tract, and then there's permeability at the blood-brain barrier, that can also obviously be very problematic. Another way mast cells impact the brain are by activating immune cells in the brain, and these are called microglial cells. And their job is to clean up unwanted dead cells and repair brain tissue. If they're getting too much activation, they will release their own inflammatory mediators, causing local inflammation, which disrupts the connections between neurons. They can be triggered by mast cells and by corticotropin-releasing hormone, the stress hormone from the brain that I'll talk more about. Too much activation of these microglial cells means too much cleaning up. Excessively scrubbing any part of the body leads to inflammation and then tissue destruction. In this case, brain cells and tissue and what we call neurodegeneration, which can equate to the beginning and progression into dementia. Remember that dementia starts early before the symptoms reach the point where someone would warrant that diagnosis. There is research showing a strong relationship between brain-related disorders in younger people, including children with ADHD or adults with depression, PTSD, head trauma, and later dementia. In a future episode, I'll talk about microglial activation as it relates to head trauma. What research has shown is that if there is a severe enough insult to the brain from head trauma, and I would suspect severe toxicity to be similar, then the microglial cells change forms and become what we call primed and have switched into a hyperactive state. And they don't necessarily return back to homeostasis. So the person might recover, however, then the next time they have an injury or some type of immune challenge or severe stress, they're symptoms could be amplified and they could be much more reactive than they would have been otherwise but for that former injury and priming of these cells. So now we understand the connection between the brain and the immune system. How does the hormonal system or the endocrine system come into play? So the main hormone that I'd like to talk about is corticotropin-releasing hormone, also referred to as CRH, and it is a hormone released from part of the brain, communicates with the adrenal glands, telling them to release more cortisol. It also is released from mast cells. There are receptors for CRH on mast cells and on microglial cells. So when this hormone is being put out in large amounts, it will hit those receptors causing them to release their inflammatory mediators and cause inflammation. This was something that was found through the work of Dr. Theohardes at Tufts University. He's well known in the field of mast cell activation. So this helps explain how emotional stress can cause acute inflammation and why lowering inflammation in the body and brain requires lowering stress 
in our lives and addressing our stress response. This is why for many of us, simply taking medication, being on a lot of supplements, making dietary changes is not enough to lower inflammation. In an upcoming episode, I will talk about RCCX theory, which suggests that about 15 to 20% of us have a mutation in an enzyme in our stress hormone pathways. We will be more prone to brain-related symptoms and therefore can benefit from strategies to lower our physiologic stress response. While there is certainly evidence that there is a genetic vulnerability to our mast cells becoming overly active, I and others would argue that toxicity, very often mold toxicity, tends to take mast cell activation to another level. I do have podcasts on mold toxicity as well as undermethylation, which I mentioned earlier. In the next episode, I'll talk about the many symptoms that can be caused by mast cell activation, and I'll talk about mast cell activation syndrome, a condition that causes mast cells to release an inappropriate amount of inflammatory mediators. This looks like a lot of symptoms involving multiple systems in the body and having a lot of seeming triggers. Darwin likely had mast cell activation syndrome. In an upcoming episode, I'll discuss tools used to stabilize mast cells, but also to lower the physiologic stress response. To be notified of upcoming episodes, please consider subscribing at CourtneySnyderMD.com, where I also have blog posts related to the root causes of brain-related symptoms. If you'd like to help me get this information out into the world, please consider liking, sharing, or commenting on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. I look forward to connecting with you in a future podcast. Until then, take care.